lot of our lives, I observe, is lived with what I would call a death grip on life. A death grip on life. That we do everything that we can to fend off the inevitable. That we white knuckle it to our last breath. Look at the way that we um, address and approach healthcare. One in five Americans spend the last days of their life in ICU at the cost of around $10,000 per day. In 2015, that's like seven years ago now, the average person generated $14,000 in healthcare costs in the last 30 days of their life. Last year, we spent $26.8 billion as Americans on gym memberships. 6% of those memberships didn't get used at all. 43% got used less than twice a week. So while we want health and fitness, we don't always have the discipline to, um, to achieve it. But all these things address the question, how can we make our lives last as long as possible? How can we live as long as we can? Look at our attention to safety. Collectively, Americans spent $20 billion on home security last year. One in five Americans installed home security systems in their house, spending an average of $1,200 per household. 70% of Americans say that they would pay an extra cost for the best safety features on a car or vehicle. So not only do we want to live as long as we can, we don't want to live, we, we want to figure out how to not get dead any sooner than we have to. Think about how we see time, how we talk about time, how we think about time. How many times have you heard someone say, there aren't enough hours in the day to get everything done. I don't have enough time. I wonder if God ever looks down from heaven and thinks, you know what, wow, I really blew that. I should have given them 26 hours a day or 20, should have given them 28 hours. Think about how much more they could have gotten. Or what if maybe I hadn't made them so needy, if I didn't make them to need those eight hours of sleep or to waste all that time eating or, or drinking. God looks down on us and the life that he made for us. How do we see our time? We talk about living, only have, having one life to live, making the most of every day, seizing the day. We make bucket lists to prioritize, to say these are the things that I want to do in the course of my life to, to make sure that I get these things done, that I do these things. And the assumption behind all of these things is that all we have is one life, that we have to make the most of it, squeeze every second out of it, get it for all it's worth, live it for all it's worth. Now, I'm not suggesting that it's a good idea to squander life. Um, I'm not saying that, hey, I think you should uh, waste your days watching soap operas and eating cherry bonbons or watching grass grow while little guys walk around with sticks whacking the little white balls. Just observing that our pursuit of making the most out of life, of getting the most out of life, is one that by all appearances is a losing battle. To make it our ultimate hope, to make it our driving force, is a losing game. 
Because no matter how hard we try to live longer or to make the most out of our lives, it is constantly ebbing away from us. We come today to the last day, uh, the last week in our series on the Apostles' Creed. And, um, and God's solution to the fleeting nature of our lives. It's fitting, I think, that the creed's last offering addresses what Paul Harvey would call, would have called the rest of the story. I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. I've stood behind, um, beside many a grave in the course of my life and boldly declared the body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. It's a doctrine that I think everyone who has ever lost anybody that they loved wants to believe is true. I find that even people who don't believe anything want to believe this, maybe even do believe this. How often do we say things like, well, grandma's in a better place now, or grandpa's probably out there golfing with the angels today, or someday people will probably say about me, Tim's probably hiking in the Alps. It raises this declaration the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting, a whole host of questions that I don't have either time for today or know the answers to. Questions like, when do we get these resurrected bodies? I go right now and dig up my grandpa's grave from a few years ago. My guess is that his body's probably in there. It's not been resurrected yet. When does that happen? How does that happen? What's heaven going to be like? How old are we going to be when we get there? Are we really going to be singing forever? And if we are, what are we going to be singing? 21st century worship songs, 20th century praise songs, 19th century hymns, 10th century Gregorian chants? Or maybe since we're going to be there forever and singing forever, we'll have time for all of them. And maybe if we're in heaven, we'll actually like all of them. What's it going to be like? Now, I'm really, again, don't have time or even answers for all those questions. What I do want to do is focus in on two questions. The two questions that we've been asking throughout this whole Apostles' Creed series, the question of why do Christians believe it? Why do we ascribe to this doctrine? And what difference does it make? What does it matter if there's a resurrection of the body and the life everlasting? Why do Christians believe it? We believe it because Jesus, the founder of the faith, and he taught it. Probably in his most famous words that we remember today, John 3.16, he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, not die, but have eternal life. The last night that he gathered together with his disciples, he, he spoke to them and he said these words from John chapter 14, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father has prepared many rooms in my house. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. 
And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with you, with me where I am, that you may be there also. To the thief on the cross, even as he's taking his last breaths, he has this conversation and he says to the repentant, he says to the repentant thief, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. In, in these contexts and in many others, Jesus addresses this offering, his purpose to make possible for us the resurrection and the life everlasting. And not only did he teach it, not only did he say it, he, he did it. Now, in an earlier uh, week in our series, we addressed um, the doctrine of uh, that on the third day, Jesus rose again from the dead. And, and in that message, I, I made the case for the, the evidence for the resurrection of the Christ. Today, I, I really just want to focus in on this. He said he was going to do it. We have evidence that he did it. And the fact that he did what he said he was going to do authenticates the rest of what he says about it. Paul says, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Jesus said he would rise again. Jesus rose again. Jesus says that he was the first and that many would come after him who would be raised again because he conquered death. But what difference does this make? Two of the most powerful forces in the universe are hope and fear. Hope. I like to define as a vision of a preferable future and an unwavering confidence that it will come to pass. Hope inspires people to pursue and to achieve great things. Hope sustains people through the face of seemingly insurmountable obstacles. Hope compels people to make great sacrifices in the pursuit of a better future for themselves, for their family, for other people. Today, my daughter Kaylee is uh, doing an, an Ironman in, in Wisconsin. An Ironman, that's a 2.4 mile run, 112 mile bike ride, and a 2.4 mile swim, 112 mile bike ride, and a 26.2 mile run. Now, I've run eight marathons. And I've never once finished one thinking, you know what? I wish I would have warmed up with a swim and a 112-mile bike ride. Why? Why is she doing it? Because she has hope for a better future for kids around the world. She has hope because she has seen the difference that clean water makes in their lives. And in that hope, she's compelled to go out to do this, to, to draw attention to both the need that exists in the world and the potential that we have to make a difference in that need, to change these kids' future. And, and so she's doing this in order to fulfill, to bring about a better future for these kids. Hope is a powerful force. The second force is fear. 
Fear is the anticipation of impending doom. Fear invokes the, the response of, of fight. There's, there's something that's threatening, something that I care about, something that I have, something that I want to keep, and I need to stand guard, I need to stand up and fight whatever it is that I need to do to protect that, whatever it is. Or sometimes, instead of fight, we fly, we run away. This is too great a fear, I don't want to face it, I don't want to conf confront it, I'm afraid to fight it, I'm going to avoid it, I'm going to run away, I'm going to leave it. Or third, fear invokes paralysis. I'm afraid to fight. I'm afraid to run. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to proceed. I don't know where to go. I don't know what to look to. And we par we're paralyzed, we freeze in place and do nothing. Fear is a bully. Fear, wherever it exists in our life, if we succumb to it, sets a boundary. I'm afraid of snakes. Well, let's just say, I don't like snakes. So because I don't like snakes, fear them, I do everything that I can to avoid them. I'm in a, in, in a classroom with my kids, one of my kids in elementary school. And 20 kids are sitting in a, around a room and they're introducing the kids to a snake and they pull it out of its case and they start passing it around the room. I don't want to touch the snake. I don't want to hold the snake. This fear that I have sets a boundary, so I pull myself back. I don't get to interact with the snake. Now, I'm completely in this situation. I'm happy to the limitation of that fear. I embrace it. I don't need to overcome it. But some of the other fears that we have when we succumb to them have much greater cost. Right? If we've been hurt in a relationship, and because of that hurt, we're afraid to engage again, and we don't overcome that fear, it sets a boundary that prevents us from connecting in the ways that we were made to be in relationship with other people. If I'm afraid of the wilderness, and I succumb to that fear, I don't get to go out on the trails. I don't get to climb the mountains. I don't get to do the things that I love to do. That's a fear. I'm, that's a limit I'm not willing to live, to, 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 to endure. So I push through it. Fear sets boundaries. In Hebrews chapter 2, the author of Hebrews says, Since the children have flesh and blood, Jesus, too, shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. In his victory over the grave, Jesus breaks the power of the one who has the power of death and then liberates us by breaking that power from the fear of death. The fear of death compels us to hold on for dear life. And not just to our last breath. We hold on to dear life for all the heartbreaks 
the little deaths along the way, losses that squash our dreams, that shrink our faith, that, that compromise our character, our integrity, that diminish our glory. The enemy, Jesus says, comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Not just the last breath, but the very lives that we live every day. He comes to take life away from us. And the fear of death and all of those little deaths stands in the way of the life that God created us for. Jesus says, I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. The promise of the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting puts a comma where trauma puts a period. Trauma says this is the end of the story. The loss is final and it will never be different. The promise of everlasting life says but, says and. So there's still another day. This is not the end of the story. This is not the last chapter. The promise of the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting puts an exclamation mark where fear puts a question. Is God faithful? Question. God has been faithful to every promise that he has ever made. Exclamation point. Is God good? God created us to be revealers of his glory, image bearers, lost in the fall, sent his son to save us from our sin, to restore us to relationship with him and to transform us again into the glory for which we created us. Is God good? God is good. Is God capable of doing this, to, to fulfilling these promises, to restoring our life? Is he capable of it? God unleashed his power in a tomb to raise Jesus from the dead to triumph over death once and for all. God is capable. I'm going to look at a passage that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And I think in this passage, Paul gives us a way to get a grip on our lives that's stronger than death. A grip that's stronger than death. Not a grip that's hanging on for dear life, but a grip that's stronger than the threat, than the fear of death itself. Paul says, Romans chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 13, it is written, I believed and therefore I have spoken. Since we have the same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak. 
because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with him, with you to himself. All this is for your benefit, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Paul says, I believe, I have spoken. You also believe, therefore speak. It's what we do every time we profess our faith in the Apostles' Creed. I believe, we're confessing our belief, our faith. Why? Because we forget. We forget what it is that we believe and why it is that we believe it and why it matters. And so the simple act of saying it again and again and again reminds us. I hope that out of this series that you'll take home a copy of the Apostles' Creed and you can use it once a week. You can use it every day in the morning to remind yourself again what it is that you believe. It's got a belief says that God is sovereign. says that Jesus is Lord. says that life is eternal. And that God has come for us and to us and is with us to the very end and to eternity. We confess our faith. We state what it is that we believe. Paul continues, Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. If I did an honest analysis of my prayers, I would say that probably 90% of them address momentary troubles what Paul would call momentary troubles, the, the stuff of life. God, help me with this situation. Help me figure out this problem. Help me address this. Help me get ready for this. Help me with this. God, show me the way with this. God, I pray for these people that I love. I pray for these, care about, these people that I care about. I, I, all of these prayers, they're not bad prayers, right? We're, we're instructed, cast all of your cares upon him for he cares for you. But they're, many of them, not kingdom of God prayers. They're kingdom of Tim prayers. They're, they're prayers that say, God, do this to help me with what I'm trying to do with my life. God, do this to direct me on a path that will help me achieve my goals. Yes, cast all your cares upon him, for he cares for you. But understand this, that our cares do not always jive with God's agenda. And God's agenda does not always speak to our cares in the ways that we would like for them to do when we pray, our kingdom come, our will be done. The quest for heaven on earth now is a recipe for anxiety, for frustration, for anger, for disappointment, and it is doomed to failure because every kingdom on earth 
ours included, is wasting away. The counter, Paul says, to what's going on outside is not to rearrange it to according, to according to our wishes. He says the counter to what's going on outside is a work that's going on inside. Outside, we're wasting away day by day. Inwardly, we're being renewed day by day. Inwardly, God is doing something that is strengthening us to confront the external realities of our broken lives in a broken world. One of my favorite prayers started uh, this summer from Ephesians chapter 3. I've I've probably um, said this a dozen times in the last six or eight weeks in sermons. Paul prays, I pray that out of his glorious riches, He may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. Strengthen you with power in his spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell where? In your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have the power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled inside to the measure of all the fullness of God. We state what we believe. We state what it is that we believe. We profess our faith. We tend to our souls. We pray for the work that God is doing in us to come into fruition, to strengthen us, to help us, to hold us together to build in us resilience, to face the wasting away of our lives. And Paul continues, So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Because what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. What are your eyes fixed on today? All the things you have to do this week, The stack of bills on your desk, the doctor's appointment later in the week, the big meeting that you have on Tuesday, as goes your vision, so goes your heart, Paul says. Fix your eyes on what's eternal, and your heart will go to the hope of eternity. Fix your eyes on what is temporary and your heart will go to things that are fleeting away. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, do not worry about tomorrow. But in the same sermon, he said, store up for yourself treasures in heaven. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Don't worry about your life, but do invest in your future. Seek first, not the stuff of your kingdom. Seek first the kingdom of God. Because it says where your treasure is, your heart will follow. As goes your vision, so goes your heart. 
if we're to fix our eyes on what we're not seeing. We need something to look at, right? Hope, by definition, is forward-looking. No one hopes for what they already have. To rescue our hearts the for the, um, by looking at the future, the future that we're looking at has to be a compelling vision. No one hopes for what they already have, but no one hopes for what they don't want either. An eternal hymn sing. For me, right, if that's the hope, of eternity that's going to drag me through today, an eternal hymn sing is not going to get the job done. Now, now maybe when I get to the other side of glory, that, that will be different. Maybe I'll be happy to sing for, for the rest of my life worship songs and praise songs and hymns and Gregorian chants. But to get through today, to get through this week, the saints in Hebrews chapter 11 says we're longing for a better country. Longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Jesus directs our attention to what he calls the renewal of all things. In his vision to John in Revelation, a new heaven and a new earth, where God will make his dwelling among us. And everything, all the old will be made new. Everything that has been broken will be fixed. Everything that has been tainted will be transformed. Everything made new. Paul says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. But we need to see something because our vision is pulling us forward into a future, inspiring us, sustaining us, compelling us. What do we look to? We, because we don't know what it is, doesn't mean that we shouldn't try. We can only imagine, but, but we still do imagine. Since some of us might be imaginably deficient, we get some help from our storytellers. Right? Our stories capture this desire that we have for this coming glory. The restoration of the Casa Madrigal in the movie Encanto, or the castle in the Beauty and the Beast, the coronation scene in The Lion and the Witch in the Wardrobe, or in The Lord of the Rings, the transformation of the ship lying at the bottom of the ocean in the Titanic when light begins to pierce through the windows and the ship rises to the surface again and is restored to its former glory. I've listed on the notes today. You can download them online. You pick up a copy if you're in, uh, in the sanctuary. Several passages from our prophets, from Jesus' teaching, from the teaching of the, the apostles that give us visions, pictures of this future glory to help us identify what the hope is to pull us forward into this future. Looking forward and being strengthened inward makes it possible for us to live hopeful, heartful, faithful lives. Loosening our grip on our compulsion, obsession with staying alive 
and strengthening our grip on abundant life, both now and for eternity. That even as we're wasting away, every loss has a comma, not a period. Paul, at the end of his life, he was under arrest. He was anticipating his, um, most likely he was going to be executed for the charges against him. And he writes to his friends at the church in Philippi. And he, and he says this, he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He's in this sweet spot of saying, I love my life and I'm here because God has me here for a purpose and I live it to his glory. For me to live is Christ. And when he takes me home, when it's time for me to go, I have the gain, the reward of eternity. That is a heart that has been strengthened inwardly, that is fixed on future glory, that is declaring its confidence, its faith, not just in the promise, but in the one who made it. Where are you today in your journey? Where are you? Say with me again, the words of the Apostles' Creed declaring our hope for our lives, even today, in all of its woes. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended to the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From then he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Lord, thank you that you are the Alpha and the Omega, the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And though we live in ever-changing lives in an ever-changing world, we have a God who is unchanging and who is faithful. Give us eyes to see ears to hear, faith to believe, beyond the world that we live in, to the world that you created and the world that you were restoring, a new heaven and a new earth, and to live heart-filled, faith-filled, hope-filled lives today. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.